All right, all the kids are back in school now, and uh, everybody's studying and uh, doing all their things. And so I figured that, that in tribute to our, our students of, of all ages, that I would give all of you guys a pop test this morning. Oh, yeah. We're going to do a pop test. Uh, it's going to be, remember when you would go into school, I don't know if they still do this or not, back in the days of chalkboards, you would go into school and the teacher would write, you know, 10 words up on the board and then you, class, take out a blank sheet of paper and number from 1 to 10 and then you're supposed to write down what the definition of each one of the words were. You know, you should have studied and been ready for it and all this pop quiz. Well, that's a little of what we're going to do this morning. It's a little pop quiz to see how well you know big church words, except for when I was not a church word. All right, are we ready? The first word is Matthew 10. Nope, we're going to gerontology is what I'm looking for. Yeah, okay, well, let's try this. While you're looking for it, the first word is gerontology. Does anybody know what the word gerontology means? Study of what? Come on, say it out loud. You did fine. Come on, don't make me walk out there. Study of aging, old people. Uh huh. I was going to say that it was the study of Barry Collins. Because, you see, and that's perfect, brother, that you're walking at me now that you could not. Thank you for that. <laughs> Serendipity. You see, Monday will be Barry's 52nd birthday. His 52nd birthday. That's exactly right. And uh, uh, I was going to say that this was the study of Barry getting older, but I didn't know if he really wanted you people to know that he was going to be 52 years old tomorrow so that when he goes to bed tonight and wakes up in the morning, that Kim will wake up with a 52-year-old man, a little over half a century. We'll stop. The second word, the second word is theology. What is theology? You got to say it loud enough for me to hear it. The study of God, study of the doctrine of God. So that's good, theology. This one's a little bit harder. This word is ponerology. Ponerology. That one's hard. Listen to it. You might be able to figure it out. Ponerology. Ology is the study of. First part is evil. Evil. It's the study of evil. And I'm going to give you a quick 50-cent sermon to go along with this because this is not related to the sermon, but I want to throw this out at you right quick, just as a little tidbit that some of you might need to put back in the back of your mind. Ponerology, ponerology, poner comes from the Greek word porneia, which means evil. Ology, study, right? Study of evil, ponerology. Now, porneia, hear the word? You hear it? Porneia. What does it bring to mind? Pornography. You're exactly right. Pornography. Root word is evil. Ography is from the Greek word grapho, which means to write or writing. Pornography is evil writing. Evil writing. Back when I was a younger man, a friend of mine had a copy of the Satanic Bible, and I thought I needed to read it. 
because, I mean, you need to know your enemy, right? So I got the copy of the Satanic Bible and I held it in my hands. And I'm telling you, as I tell the story, as I've gone through this several times, uh, as I've gone through this several times, every time I get the same feeling, it was the same feeling I had that day when he handed me the book. It's not revulsion like I'm going to throw up kind of thing. It's like I am holding death in my hands. I think about the movies you watch where there's a bomb about to go off and they're really quickly trying to get it dismantled so that it will blow up and kill everybody. That feeling that if I don't do this right, I'm going to, get, I'm going to blow up and absolutely die. That feeling holding this thing in my hand and then I decide I'm going to try to read it and so I open it up and I look at a page and close it up because I realize that what I'm holding in my hand is a book that is written by somebody whose goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what, that's the whole purpose of this. It is evil writing. For those of you that may have a little issue with pornography. I wanted to say this this morning. It's not a part of the pop test, but I wanted to say it this morning so that plant that seed in your mind that when you are challenged, when you are, are, are tempted, when you feel that desire come up, remember that what you're looking at, what you're about to do is look at evil writing. Evil writing. And the goal of that evil writing as much as it makes your heart beat faster and all the stuff that it does, the goal of that evil writing is to destroy you. That's the goal. So, pornology, study of evil, pornography, evil writing, put those two in your head. Fourth word that we've got up here is theodicy. Whoop, that's a big one. Theodicy. Who can, who can tell me what theodicy is? Theodicy is the study of why God allows evil in the world. Theodicy. It has a name, a big name. All right. Number five is the word deontology. It is included because I like to say the word. Really, I like it trips off your tongue. Deontology. You don't even have to move your mouth too much. It's deontology. What does that mean? Anybody have a clue? Seminary word. Barry. <laughs> yeah, he just looked it up. Um, deontology is the study of the rightness or the wrongness of a specific action without regard to the outcome of the action or the person's doing the action. So what that's saying is that I would study the act of murder, not who was murdering or who was going to die. I'm just studying is murder right or wrong. That's what deontology is. These are all seminary words. I learned these things. I, I brought these up by memory. It was crazy. The next word is just. We use this word in church all the time, right? Something is just. What does just mean when we say something is just? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about God being just. Just means behaving according to what is morally right or fair. Behaving, it's a doing thing. Doing what is morally right or what is fair. That's just. And the last word is the word we're going to look at this morning is righteous. What does it mean to say that someone is righteous? What does that mean? Righteous means being morally right or justifiable. It means being virtuous, and I had to look virtuous up because that's not a word we use all the time. Having or showing high moral standards. So if a person is righteous, they are morally right, 
They are justifiable or justified. They're virtuous. They have very high moral standards. All of these church words, except for bariology, uh, gerontology, all of these church words are, are pretty much church words except that. Pretty much seminary words. We don't use those in church. If we walk around talking about ecclesiology, deontology, theodicy, that's just to make us sound smart. What we really talk about in the church is why is there evil, what is evil, what is good, who is God. That's the way we talk within the church. But the last two words we use in church all the time. We use the word just all the time. We use the word, we use the word righteous all the time. And I wonder, do we know what those words mean when we say them? Do we know what they mean? A number of you remember a verse from Vacation Bible School in years past that, uh, again, back in the days of chalkboards, didn't have the Internet, didn't have cell phones. We were dumb as rocks back in those days. And they had to write it with this rock on this black thing on the wall, and it would chalk up and fall to the ground. And the biggest thrill you got was getting danced by the teacher to go outside and clean the erasers. That meant you were somebody. Yeah, that's what made my life exciting. So back in those days, we had this that we memorized. We always memorized everything back in those days in the King James Version of the Bible. And it says, study to show thyself or study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let me ask you, has there ever been a time when you're talking to somebody about your faith, about religion, about God, and you used a phrase or a word or a sentence and they looked at you like you had four heads? You ever had that happen? You're talking to them and they just look, and you know, you know that they don't know what you're talking about. They don't have a clue. And so then you try to explain it to them and you realize at that time, you can't explain it. How do I explain righteous to somebody? What does that mean? And so you stand there and you sort of stutter and stammer for a bit and now you're embarrassed or to use the King Jimmy word up there, you're ashamed. Man, I ought to know how to do this. I've done it. Wasn't that long ago that I stood up and was talking to somebody about some really religious stuff and they looked at me and they said, what the blank does that mean? I was not offended by the blank because I deserved the blank. What does that mean? And I tried to stutter and stammer. How do you communicate these words to people that do not have our secret decoder ring and don't know the secret handshake? How do we explain these things? So that's what we want to look at this morning. What does the word righteous mean? When the Bible says, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Well, we know what that means. The evil are those people over yonder and the righteous are us. Yeah, I will not be on the down elevator. I'll be going on the other side, right? Why? How do I define that? What will we look like if we are righteous? The only way for us to know what we're going to look like if we are righteous is to go to the one who is considered the holy and righteous one. We look at Jesus and see who he was and what he did. And we're going to go to a crazy place to do that. We're going to go to the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. We're going to go to Malachi chapter, or chapter 2 verse 27 through chapter 3, verse 6. 
Listen to what he says. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil in the sight of the Lord, and he delights. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in the righteousness in righteousness to the lord then the offering of judah and jerusalem will be pleasing to the lord as in the days of old and as in former years then i will draw near to you for judgment i'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, before we start tearing this apart, let me say this about that. When we say something is just, we are talking about the action. Just is action. Just is doing. A, a, a person is not just The action that they do is a just action. The person is righteous. Righteousness or being righteous is a state of being. Remember, it's morally right or justifiable, virtuous. It is a state of being. We can look at the things that we do and understand what the person is that we're looking at. I know we can get into all kinds of arguments, but I'm telling you, when it gets down to it, a person is known by the fruit that they bear. And if you look at somebody who speaks pleasing words but does ungodly things, I got a feeling they've got trouble in their soul. But if I look at someone that doesn't say anything about who they are or what they are, and yet they do godly things, I have a pretty good suspicion that there's something good going on inside of them. Just as what we do, Mine went blank. Righteous is who we are. So here we go. Chapter 2, verse 17 says the priests, the pastors had wearied God by doing these things. Now, priest, and you're thinking, well, that's just all the preacher type, all the vocational stuff. But then you have to look at Scripture, how Scripture works with Scripture, and you find out that we are a royal priesthood. You remember hearing that? We are a royal priesthood, so that means that we're all priests. And what is the temple of the Holy Spirit? My body. My body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when I read this scripture, I read this scripture as applying to me. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm a royal priesthood. And he says that I have made or priests have made God tired. How that says they have wearied God. They've made him tired. Have you ever had anybody make you tired? Oh, yeah. You You know what that feels like. I had a friend, I think I probably told you about this a long time ago. Nobody would be this girl's friend. And I always feel sorry for people like that because I've been in that same situation and we probably all have at some point in our life. And I wanted to help her and be her friend. But to be her friend, man, it's like you had to stand there for a minute going, I can do this. I'm going in. And you go over, hey, how you doing? And she was the kind of person, honest to goodness, she was the kind of person that she could say, you know what? My brother, my brother won the lottery. And I go, really? 
How much did he win? He won a billion dollars. Really? Wow, that's great. He gave me half of it. Wow, you got $500 million. Yeah, I can't understand why that's all he gave me because I've worked so hard in my life for him. I just don't understand. My child made a 99, was the only one in the class that made a 99 that was the highest grade in the class. She's been working so hard. I love her so much. It is so wonderful. I just can't understand, though. She's better than that. Why did she make a 100? I mean, she made you tired. You were wrestling with her the whole time. She could take the sunshine and turn it into rain. She made me tired. We make God tired. That's the idea. How do we make him tired? Listen to me. When we say that evil is good and God takes delight in that evil, in our world right now, what do we hear? We say that evil is good and that God takes delight in that. Have you ever seen a time when Jesus said something that, that was not good and yet he said it was good? With God, there are no gray areas. Anything that he knows, anything that he knows is wrong, he doesn't work to find a loophole in it. He doesn't try to find a way to do this thing because he wants to do this thing. So he looks for that loophole to try to work his way into it. He never did that. In Jesus' economy, if it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's right, it's right. Righteous believes the truth. Righteous speaks the truth. Righteous lives the truth. And does it all with a spirit of compassionate love. That's what righteous does. Second way we weary God is when we say, where is God and where is the God of justice? And people, we do that now in the church. Where is the God of justice? Like he's on Mars. He's going to get back to us at some times. Where is the God of justice? Where is God? With all this that's going on in the world, where is God? Well, where has he ever been? Do you understand how ridiculous this question is? Where is God? He's right where he's always been. He's waiting on us. Listen, he chose to change the world through people. He does not do magic. No magic wand. Everything's right now. He chose to work through people. If we want to see the world change, get on your knees, get right with God, and then get out in the marketplace and talk about him. That's all there is to it. That's the whole formula. Be right with God and talk about him everywhere you go. That's how the world gets changed. The righteous know where God is. They live their their life based on that. Now look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. It says, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The two people that he's talking about here, the first person he's talking about, I believe, is John the Baptist. It's the spirit of Elijah that comes in and makes the way of the Lord straight. And the second person he talks about here. Is, is the Lord, is Jesus himself coming in. Now, what happens when Jesus enters his temple? Remember, who is the temple? Where is the temple? Me. Me. I'm the temple. When he enters me, what does it say? He starts to refine it. Like refiner's fire or fuller's soap. Refiner's fire is easy. How it's made, 
on October the 2nd is the 10-year anniversary of How It's Made. They're going to have a How It's Made-a-thon. 24 hours that I get to watch things like I watched this morning. How sewage is treated in waste treatment plants. Do you know how exciting that was? Man, it's a killer. 24 hours of How It's Made on October the 2nd. I know how refiner's fire works because how it's made has shown me how iron is smelted, how gold is refined, how silver. I understand that. Fuller soap. What in the world is fuller soap? <clears throat> had no clue, so I had to look it up. Fuller soap is actually refers to washing clothes is what it's referred to. And he talks about washing clothes. You've seen the, 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 the movies, the Italian movies where they have the big vat and they put all the grapes in the big vat, and then they get in the vat, and they stomp the grapes to get the juice out to make the wine. You all know that, right? And you're all hoping that they don't have toenail fungus or athlete's feet, and they all wash their feet. I mean, that's what I think about when I see them do that. Fuller soap is the same idea, for, but for clothes. And what they did is they'd take a big vat, and they'd fill it about yay deep with water. And then whatever kind of soap they had back in those days, they put the soap in there. And then they'd throw the clothes in. And the women would get in the water with the clothes. And they would stomp the clothes until they were clean. They would stomp the dirt out. The clothes never came to the top. The clothes stayed underwater until the dirt was completely drowned out. And that's the image that he's giving here of when he enters the temple. When he enters the temple, he starts purifying things. And you know, it's not pleasant. You know, we lie to people when we witness to them. Accept Jesus as your Savior and everything will, everything will start turning out right. Yeah, it will. He will start working in you. But the first thing he starts to do is clean you up. And cleaning up, he says, is purifying fire and fuller soap. It means that he works in you and burns stuff up and drowns some stuff. And sometimes that's not fun. It is not fun. It has never been fun for me to have to admit that I'm wrong about anything. It is rare that I am wrong. Unless I'm talking to my wife and then it's a fairly regular occurrence. But I don't like that. And yet that's what God does, Jesus does when he enters the temple. He makes us righteous by burning these things away. Jesus enters the temple. We trust him as our Savior just as we are. Look, folks, people are going to come to this church, God willing, that aren't going to look right and aren't going to talk right. And that's okay. And they're going to come in with baggage and have done things that we're going to look at them and go, oh, and that's okay. Because, see, it's not their job to get cleaned up before they come in. It's not our job to get cleaned up before we meet Jesus face to face. It is our job to come to him exactly as he is and trust him just as he is so that when we do trust him just as he is, as we are, he enters the temple of our bodies. He somehow has a mystical union with us that I don't understand. I do know the scripture tells me, and I believe it because it's happened to me, that he comes and lives in my heart, that he comes and lives as a part of me. Don't understand the mechanics of all of that, but he does. And then he starts purging all of the mess that I've got in me. 
And sometimes he purges quick and sometimes he purges slow. But that's the way it works. He cleans us up. It's not our job to clean somebody up. It's his job to clean somebody up. But it's always a good thing when he does that. Nobody I know with any degree of sanity enjoys doing wind sprints. Y'all remember those? Caitlin, do y'all still do those things in wind sprints? Yeah. When I was, if you can imagine this body doing wind sprints, I've always looked like this. Maybe a little lighter, but it's just one of those things. Humpty Dumpty. That's, I can't help myself. Actually, Captain Kangaroo, but that's another story. But the wind sprints, you start at the baseline. You know, you start at the baseline and you run to the key and you run back. And you run to half court and you run back. You run to the other key and you run back. You run to the, all the way to the other baseline. You run back. Then you run back to the other key and you run back. Half court and back. Key and back. And then you throw up. That's what a wind sprint is. It's exactly what a wind sprint is. Everybody hates wind sprints. Everybody loves winning. Does anybody in here enjoy losing? Nobody likes to lose. Everybody likes to win. In order to win, in order for good things to happen, sometimes difficult things has to happen in order to get us there. Surrendering yourself to be burnt and drowned with Christ will make you the vision of perfection that he's wanting to make you into. All right, verse 5. I'll hurry. Then I'll draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in the wages, who oppress the widow, who oppress the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. Sorcery is one of those words that makes the people of the 21st century scoff at Christianity. Sorcery is Harry Potter stuff. And that's what it is. Sorcery is magic. That's what he's talking about. It's magic. But I want, to, I want to, you to think about something. Magic means that you say a magic word or you do a magical incantation or you make a potion of some sort and then you get what you want. I submit to you that we believe in magic. I submit to you and here's why. If I can have that woman... I'll be happy. If I can have that man, poof, I'll be happy. If I can have, if I can have that new car or a new house or a new wife or a new husband or a new job or a new career, poof, I'll be happy. All of that baggage and mess that I've toted along with me in my little brown wagon all of these years, somehow it's just mysteriously going to disappear. I'll be happy all of a sudden. If I move, if I get a new gun, if I get a new boat, if I kill the biggest buck, if I catch the biggest bass, if I paint the prize-winning painting, if I write the prize-winning poem, if I sing the most beautiful song and get the most applause, poof, I'll be happy. Tell me we don't believe in magic. That's the way we live. I speak the right words. I do the right actions. And no matter what has been in my life that has made me miserable and unhappy, it will go away and I will get the golden ticket and I'll get to meet Willy Wonka. And he's going to set me and my family up forever. All I've got to do is do this and poof, win the lottery. Yeah. 
and I'll be happy. We believe in magic. Living our lives, he says, with magic. Living our lives, ignoring God's reverence for biblical marriage, being untruthful, being so obsessed with success and money that we oppress those that work for us in order for us to have more money and success, that we refuse to help the widow or the fatherless because they're so needy, they need these things, and it would take away from our ease and our comfort, and we want to be at ease and comfortable. Ignoring the homeless and the poor in order to maintain our standard of living. I don't want to give up any of the things I've got to help the poor. Ignoring God... We want to be righteous. God's holding a mirror up to our face and he's saying, what do you see? What do you see? What should we see? Jesus says that when some guys were trying to trick him, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A righteous person knows that there is nothing material on this side of heaven that can fill the hole that is in your heart. And when I say material, I am not talking about money. I'm talking anything that's made out of atoms. There is nothing this side of heaven, nothing this side of heaven that exists that can fill the hole that exists in our hearts. We hunger for a Savior. We crave true, deep, meaningful friendships. How do I know that? Well, scriptures help me with it. And then I look at Facebook. You women tell me the world on Facebook. Me and Elsie got together. We've been friends for 32 years. I haven't seen her in the last three years, but we finally got to have a girls, well, girls weekend. I got that from one of y'all just recently. Her name's not Elsie, but y'all had a girls weekend with a friend that you hadn't seen in years and years and years. What does that tell me? It tells me your husbands have the kids and they're not happy because they're not good at it like y'all are. It tells me that you long for true and deep meaningful relationships that you would hold on to Elsie for 32 years. We crave a savior. We hunger for deep relationships. We long to be a part of something so powerful that we see needy people's lives changed. We see elderly love and protected and we see fatherless people get the families that they so desperately want. We want to be a part of something bigger than us. We want to be a part of something that changes the world. We want to do something that matters. We want it. And you know that you want it. And I don't expect it to be everybody in here right now, but somebody I know that right now you're listening to me and your heart is about to burst because you know that what I'm saying is true. Either you love Jesus and you want more of him or you don't know Jesus yet but he's knocking at the door of your heart and you know that you know that you know that you want him and you're just scared to death because the preacher just said it's going to be hard when it happens. Listen to me, a man said once, a very smart man said once, no one wins the rat race. There is no righteousness in the right rat race. I have been there. I have lived it. It will consume you. You will never be fulfilled by it. 
I'm going to give you more information than you need to hear. And after I leave, my wife will beat on me. My goal years ago was to make a six-figure salary. I mean, that was my goal. And I was in sales. And we could make six-figure salaries. And I worked my rear end off for that six-figure salary. And I got my W-2 form. And it was $106,000 or $107,000 I made that year. And I felt just as flat as I felt before I looked at it. Well, I did it. What now? Now we've got to make 125. And what happens if you get the 125? Now I've got to get 150. Or maybe you're a little lower in the totem pole and you're, I, I'm going to make 50. And then you get 50 and you see your W 2 and you go, well, now I'm going to make 75. The rat race doesn't fulfill us. No matter what we do, and it could be anything. It don't have to be your W 2 form, it can be anything in the world. If I can date, I'm a single guy. If I can date Caitlin, oh, my whole world will change. And then I date her, and it's like, well, she's a nice girl. But you know what? Her friend's pretty cute, too. <laughs> right? No one wins in the rat race. No one wins. There's no righteousness there. But righteousness, being molded into a person who loves God, who loves his wife, who loves his children, who loves his friends, who finds himself loving strangers and is happy just because he woke up on a fall day and it was beautiful outside and God gave him another day of life and he was going to get to go to church and see some of his friends just being alive. That is satisfaction. That's where we're at. That's what God gives to us. That is the prize. That is peace. That is being righteous. God has held a mirror to our faces. The holy and righteous one held a mirror to our faces this morning and said, if you want to be righteous, this is what it looks like. Now, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? What do you see? I'm going to ask you to do something I don't ask people to do usually. But I want to ask you all to bow your heads. If you would, bow your heads. If you're a Christ follower and you've looked in the mirror this morning and you're not particularly pleased with what you see, pray this prayer. Father, I gave myself to you but I can see I'm not acting like you. I don't like what I see. I want to be like you. I surrender myself to you, pleading with you to burn away everything that keeps me from you. Teach me to let you live through me. And if you're not a Christ follower, 
yet you know who Christ is. And you know that he is knocking on the door of your heart saying, trust me so I can take you where I want you to go, which will be the greatest place you've ever, you've ever been. Trust me to guide your life. Trust me to give you the happiness that you've not been able to come by on your own. Trust me. If that's you this morning, if you're sitting with somebody, take their hand. Pray this prayer. Father, I know I'm a sinner. I lived my life without you. But I want you. Please forgive me of my sins and start purifying me to be like you. Whatever it takes, Lord, take me through it so I can learn to let you live through me. And Father, as a congregation this morning, we pray to you and ask that there would be people in this house that would have prayed those prayers this morning in all sincerity in all humility, because they know standing before you, the scripture says, who can stand when you come into the room? And they're feeling in their hearts right now that they're not worthy to stand before you. But gracious Father, I know that you walk to each one of us and take our hands and lift us up. You call us brother, and you change us. Father, I pray this week you would let us see some of that change taking place. Help us to see you everywhere we go in everything we do. Help us to see you. And help us to be able to tell people about it. Make us righteous. In Jesus' name, amen.